you have your Bibles with you, feel free to open them up to John chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can also follow along in the bulletin. We're going to be looking at the first 18 verses. And this morning, I would like to talk to you about the subject of worldview. That's what's on my mind. When I say worldview, what I'm saying is uh, one of the goals for this church and also one of the goals for the campus ministry that I have the privilege of leading called RUF is for the people in the group, for the people in this church to begin to see the world and their relationships and their calling through the lens of the gospel. We all have a, we all have a lens. What lens is it? And so one of our goals here at this church and in RUF is that increasingly the gospel begins to be worked into our lives that we are interpreting everything around us through the scriptures. Now the topic of worldview, I feel like I need to kind of set up a little bit. Um, Worldview is very simply seeking to answer three major questions um, and there's a myriad of worldviews out there, right? And the questions are essentially this. What is my mission? What are human beings for? What is life about? However you want to phrase it. A mission question. Secondly, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? What's the problem? Number two. Number three, how do we get out of this predicament? How do things change? Where's hope? You know, depending on the worldview. And all, every major worldview, atheism, theism, pantheism, seeks to answer those questions. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know what you think about Christianity, you don't even know what you think about whether God even exists, you still have a worldview. And I, I think what, what I want to humbly put before you or sort of persuade you is that after our time here this morning, that you might be one step closer to actually considering the claims of the gospel, considering the claims of the, of the Christian worldview. Because one of the things that, that, I've, that I've seen in working with college students for over 10 years is that we have a theology that we espouse, a belief system, values, ethics that we can articulate. Maybe you know the catechism or you have a bunch of Bible verses memorized, which is, those are all great things, by the way. But then we have how we actually live our lives, how we actually think about our jobs, how we actually think about our marriage, how we actually think about our neighbors, how we actually think about family members or extended family members. And so as the gospel begins to continually grow us and work into our lives... Are you seeing those people around you through the lens of the work of Jesus? Because when that's happening, it doesn't just change how you view your heart or you go to hell or go to heaven. The gospel is not just a fire insurance policy. Well, I'm good now, but now what's my life for? No, no, no. The gospel is that God is bringing new creation through the work of Jesus now, here and now. And he's called us, he's invited us to be a part of that in the workplace, in your families. And it's exciting. And it's actually what you were made for. And we, you know what? We get a glimpse of that, of this cosmic picture of God's kingdom in John chapter 5. That actually wasn't my sermon. That was just my introduction to the introduction. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. I just get excited. Can't help it. 
Um, the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? It's okay to laugh. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now. And I am working. And watch this verse here. Look at this one. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That is quite a claim. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're going to need your help to understand your word We cannot understand your words at all unless you send your Holy Spirit rushing through this place this morning. They're just words apart from your Spirit. We need you to get out your sledgehammer and chip away at the rockiness of our hearts. We need you to remove the things that are stopping up our ears. We need you to open our eyes to see you this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a story of a man who is in a very desperate position. Can we all agree with that? Have you ever been in a desperate position before? They, you know, they say that, that desperate times call for desperate measures. Um, <clears throat> one of the most desperate situations I've ever been in was in ninth grade geometry class. And my ninth grade geometry teacher is now a head coach, football coach, at an SEC school. And I'm not going to tell you which one because this is being recorded. But um, when I was in ninth grade, I was not doing very well in geometry class. And I, I, I tried. I did my homework. I couldn't figure it out. 
And my teacher told us, he said, if any of you guys kind of on the bubble, if y'all need kind of a little nudge getting over the top, you know, to make sure get you from a B to a, or from a C to a B or a D to a C or whatever applies to you, you know, at the end of the semester, if you just kind of give me a couple of sleeves of golf balls, you know, at, at the end of the semester, you know, you might just have a point or two added to your grade. This uh, SEC coach and ninth grade geometry teacher was surprised when I showed up with two cases of golf balls to present to him to say, Merry Christmas and thank you for teaching me. But look, guys, I was desperate. I could not come home with a C on my report because my parents were going to freak out. They were going to make me do a bunch of working in the yard and stuff that I just did not want to do. I was willing to do anything. And, you know, maybe I was bending, bending the rules a little bit. No, I was. That was wrong. I should not have done that. Don't pay off your teacher, boys and girls. But you know what? Desperate times call for desperate measures. This man is at the end of his rope. The, the text says that there are all kinds of invalids, which is a broad umbrella term that says there's a lot of blind, lame, paralyzed, hurting people who have no one to take care of them, who are so desperate, they're at this pool, and by the way, archaeologists have been able to uncover exactly where this pool is, and these people are so desperate, supposedly this water, legend says, has magical powers, but you have to be the first one in the water. You're the first one in the water, then you get healed. He's that desperate that now he's, he's wondering if maybe this magical water is going to help him. Desperation. And yet, Jesus goes to this person who is obviously desperate. He asks him the most obvious question in the Bible. Surrounded by people who, are, who need to be healed, do you want to be healed? No. No, Jesus, I'm just hanging out here all day long. Guys... Of course he wants to be healed. But what Jesus is alluding to with this question is, do you really want to be healed? Or do you just want to be comfortable? Do you just want to have your physical needs met? you want to be able to walk around? Or do you really want the healing that I bring? Because Jesus knows that's, that's a big claim. See, why would Jesus ask a question like that? And what does that have to do with us? How does that apply to us? See, I think Jesus wants us to understand and experience the kind of healing that only he brings. Jesus wants us to look at this situation, this man, the invalid who is lame. Not as a certainty that if you're sick today that you can be assured that you're going to be healed. Or that if you're depressed, that if you pray hard enough, you're you're, you're not going to be depressed anymore. No, 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 no. Jesus wants us to see this man as a window into God's kingdom and his worldwide cosmic renewal and restoration of all things. He wants us to understand the healing that he brings. And there's three things that I want to say about the healing from this text. There's some other things that I'm not going to have time to get into, but I want to say three things. I want us to understand first... The need for healing. That is what verses 1 through 7 are all about. The need for healing. We have to start there. Who was the man? Well, it says that the man was an invalid. We don't know why he was an invalid, but the text says that he was an invalid for how many years? 38 years. Those of you that are 19 right now, 
twice your life. This guy was an invalid, a crippled. Those of you who are nine and a half, four times your life, four and a half times, four times. We don't know whether he was born that way. Most scholars believe, and I'm going to tell you why I hold this position a little bit later, probably he was born normal and something happened to him. And maybe he actually was unwise and made a mistake. And as a, and a result of his mistake, became crippled. The point is, John wants us to understand that this guy was desperate. He had been crippled for 38 years. Can you imagine how that would have affected you? Put yourself in that person's shoes. Just try to imagine. That maybe the closest thing you can think about are the, the homeless men and women that, that are that are all through downtown, and we walk past them. I'm guilty of this so often. Walk right past people, don't even look at them. Similar situation. This man has been out there for 38 years. Can you imagine how that paralysis would affect him socially in an ancient culture? Can you imagine how it affected him financially, that he was a beggar? Can you imagine how it affected him romantically, the loneliness? Can you imagine how it affected him spiritually, psychologically, 38 years? John wants us to understand the need, the desperation. This guy is really, really, really needy. What does he do? Well, like I was mentioning, somehow it was rumored that this water would somehow get stirred up. And if you're the first person in the pool, then somehow you would be healed. That was the legend. And so all day long, this man is sitting there watching the water and waiting. And he says, but even when the water does get stirred up, he's so dependent, he doesn't have anyone to carry him into the water. Seven verses, John wants us to see this person is the picture of need. So let's get a quick summary of this man's resume, in case, we're all, in case we forget. He laid on a mat for 38 years. That's his resume. Those are his credentials. He was crippled and helpless and he had no ability. And then one day, this guy named Jesus walks up and heals him. He didn't do anything. Jesus did everything. Why would John spend seven verses to go into all these details about where this place is and how long he was crippled? Because he wants us to understand something. That this is a picture of how God comes to everyone. All of us are the crippled guy on the mat. Every one of you. I don't care whether you have a really big, cool SUV. I don't care whether you have an awesome house in Five Points or Oconee County and you have one of those cool man caves with the projector. All of this stuff, we don't want to feel needy and dependent. But this text is saying that you will not get Jesus unless we first understand our utter neediness. One author says this, that all you need is need. And we typically say, no, 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 look how sufficient I am. Look how much I can provide for myself. All of us are the crippled guy on the mat. And no, we're not, 
All, we all have different paralysis, but the issue is the same. We are hopeless, helpless, desperate, broken, and weak, and we can do nothing to impress Jesus. He is not impressed with you going to church on Sundays. He is not impressed with your children being perfect and jumping through all of your hoops. He is not impressed with how much money you have. He is not impressed with your, with your, your positive outlook. He is not impressed with your discipline. We bring nothing to the table. We are sitting on a mat for 38 years, utterly needy. Can you be honest this morning about that? Behind all of the really nice clothes, behind the kids in private school, public school, homeschool, can you be honest with yourself for the first time in a long time that you are broken? That you and I are helpless and hopeless. I can't even believe I'm preaching this sermon. I'm so self-reliant. You would be embarrassed to see how much I trust in my own resources. But we are all hopeless and helpless. And Jesus has to come to us. Can you actually acknowledge that at times we are covering up our lives with more studying, more work, more busyness, more accomplishments. This morning, if you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about the gospel, can I speak to you for a second? Are you intrigued or curious about Jesus? Does this picture sort of, I don't know, inspire you or motivate you? You're like, man, I kind of wish that was true. I don't even know if the Bible's real. I don't know if that's really true or not, but that story's amazing if that really happened. If that's where you are and you want to be healed, Jesus will always elude you unless you first see yourself as a broken and needy person. And I know that's offensive in our culture to say that you have a problem, that I have a problem. But you're always going to miss Jesus unless you first begin with your brokenness and your neediness, our desperation. Are you a Christian here this morning? Have you forgotten that your healing began because of Jesus? So stop comparing yourself to the people on the other side of the room. Stop comparing yourself with the people that live under your roof. Everything that we have is because our Father has given it through the work of Jesus. Maybe you can be honest and say, Justin, I'll be very straight with you. I just don't feel very desperate this morning. I don't feel very needy. I understand that. Believe me, I go through those times often. My question is, how, how would you describe your repentance? See, the, the life of the Christian is constantly repenting and believing the gospel and saying, oh, I've made it about Justin again. I'm going to turn away from that and remind myself of God's love and his care that I'm a child of God. That should be the normal, everyday walk of the Christian life. Repentance and believe. Repentance and believe. How is your repentance? Until we are convinced that apart from grace, we are the lame man, then joy is going to continually be elusive for us. Hope will continually miss us. Compassion won't be in our hearts because it's some small, strange way that we can't put our finger on. We mistakenly think that God is really, really lucky to have us around. But see, when you understand your desperation and our neediness, it will change how you see people. You won't see yourself as any different than other people. Yes, someone might have a different struggle than you, but you're like, I'm just like you. 
I'm no different. I, I'm desperately in need of God's grace. Have you forgotten about your desperate condition this morning? Like I have? Don't be ashamed of it. Don't stuff it back down. Bring it out in the open and say, Jesus, this is where I am. I need you to change my heart. He is so honored by that. Do you see our need? I hope you do. Seven verses. But secondly, do you also see the cost of healing? There are tremendous costs. This is hard. Because if you, if you are going to buy in and receive the kind of healing that Jesus has on the table, it's going to require something of you. It's going to require something of me. And it's painful. How many of you had ever, I've ever broken a bone? And then that orthopedic surgeon comes in, wheels that little cart in with the, with the, the cast thing or whatever, and he's like, okay, I just need you to, this is going to hurt a little bit. And what does he do? He resets your bone. Because for healing to start, it first involves pain. My, my good friend and, and intern here at the University of Georgia, Robert Knuth, who's out of the country right now on a mission trip, was playing church league softball with many of you knuckleheads uh, a number of weeks ago. And he was trying to, trying to run out a, uh, an infield hit. And he slipped on the first base. And he's this massive six-foot-five guy. He slips, lands on his shoulder, just completely destroys his clavicle. It's broken in two or three places. He had to have surgery. It was so serious. He was, he was in so much pain. He was staying at our house. But for healing to begin... It first involved pain. The bone had to be set right. See, there are real costs to healing too. Jesus asked the layman, do you, do you want to be healed? And again, the connotation is, do you really want the kind of healing that I'm bringing? Or do you just want to have your comfort taken care of? And we know that Jesus is talking about more because later on in verse 14... The kind of healing that Jesus brings isn't just about being able to walk around. It's getting down into this man's hurts, his longings, his desires, even his twisted heart. He's talking about sin. Jesus doesn't just want to heal this man and allow him to walk around. He wants to heal him from sin. In response to the new life that Jesus gives to this man, Jesus says, go and sin no more, that nothing worse might happen to you. And again, many scholars believe what Jesus is saying here um, is that something happened to this man. Something happened to him that, as a consequence of that decision, caused paralysis, caused him to be an invalid. And Jesus is saying, you have new life now. That old you is gone. Now, I need to say a couple of things about this because I don't want us to walk out of here and be, and be confused. There's a couple of traps that we can fall into when we look at a passage like this. Some of you are going to fall into the trap and say, aha, everywhere the Bible talks about sickness and death is directly caused from someone's sin every time. Wrong. There are plenty of cases where people are just born in a broken world and they're they have disease or they're born paralyzed. We cannot always correlate one for one that you are somehow being punished by God because you're sick. Okay? 
But this text is saying this man did something, maybe in his younger years, let's say hypothetically something like he was speeding. I know there weren't cars back then. Imagine today. He was speeding. He made a poor decision. And he got in a car accident. And he was like way out of control. And he's paralyzed. Or even something worse, he was intoxicated and he got behind the wheel and nailed a median and he's paralyzed. Something along those lines. The scripture is saying that. But we dare not believe that every single time it's a one-to-one correlation. But also, I don't want you to fall into a second trap. Sin has no consequences. (laughs) I'm a Christian, I'm saved by grace, but what I do in this life, I'm a new creation. There's no consequences to sin. That's what Jesus has taken. Oh, no, 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 no. You might be forgiven by Jesus for stealing something, but in the state of Georgia, you aren't forgiven. You still have to go to jail. Sin does have consequences. Your decisions, young people, now has a consequence, a reality, okay? But then there's the, there's a, the third option that I think is, is a nice balance, is that our sin has consequences at times. And this is certainly one of those cases. Jesus wants him to see not only that he's healed him physically, but he's also healing him spiritually. Look at your legs. Look at the spring in your step. You have new life. You have received grace. Go and sin no more. I've given you a new life. You are changed. Imagine that desperate cancer patient knocking on death's door and the doctor saying, I can heal you. I can heal you. And then the cancer patient says, well, is it going to hurt? Yes. I'm going to put chemicals in your body and it's going to make you sick. You're going to want to feel like you're going to die. But you're actually going to live. I can heal you. You will live. Have you received grace? Jesus says, go and sin no more. Like the layman, are you willing to let go of your sin today? No matter what it is, even if it costs you, even if it feels like crucifixion, even if it feels like poison being pumped into your body, even if it feels so unnatural. There's a a funny video that came out a number of years ago that basically was a couple of guys who are Christians, but they were making fun of Christians. And it's, it, I, I recommend it, because we need to learn to laugh at ourselves. Um, and the, on the video, these two comedians are basically taking this Christian lingo that people say in churches, and it was like two minutes of just Christian phrases. And, you know, like, um, they're making fun of how every small group is like, you know, has like a funny, cool, hip name, and... Anyways, you've probably seen the video. But one of the things that really stood out, it was funny, but it also hit close to home, was when the guy's talking to another guy, he's like, man, I'm just really struggling. Just really, it's on a slippery slope. Just really struggling. And then they go on to the next thing. And what that's code for is that that someone is struggling with their sin. It means that they're naming what that sin is usually. And they're fighting against it. Like, I don't want this in my life anymore. I love Jesus. But the old man, the old sort of habits keep popping back up. And I want to fight against it. That's a good thing. That's how the Bible talks about struggling. The Christian life is a war. You fight. But now what that phrase has been reduced to in our culture is 
that you're naming the particular thing you struggle with, but if you sort of say you struggle with it, that now no one else really asks you about it because you're saying you struggle with it. And my concern in our culture is that we have this certain list of things we say, I mean, I'm just really struggling with this. I'm struggling with greed or I'm struggling with worldliness. I'm struggling with self-righteousness. I'm struggling with pornography addiction, whatever it is. And we say we struggle with it, but we need to hear again, go and sin no more. That you have a new allegiance. It's not enough just to say, man, I really struggle with worldliness. Get the heck out of Dodge. Run away from it. Man, I really struggle with being self-righteous. Then do something about it. Fight. Go and sin no more. I think we have to dig a little bit deeper and ask ourselves questions. This was hard to ask myself. Are you sick of being controlled by the opinions of others? Are you sick of being controlled by the opinions of what your parents think? You're 30 years old, but you're still owned by your mom and dad. Are you sick of feeling completely owned by your addictions that just take you around like a dog on a leash? Do you really want to be healed or are you just playing games? See, the hardest part is that we choose sin... This is exactly what Clay was getting at last week. We choose sin because we find it more beautiful and more lovely and more desirable and more life-giving than loving God and loving other people. We find it more meaningful. So it doesn't do any good to make somebody feel guilty. Like, you weren't in church on Sunday. You weren't in Bible study. No. Like, people always say, do you get discouraged when people stop coming to the RUF meetings on Wednesday nights because of midterms or whatever? Like, no. They're just doing what they love. If it's more meaningful to play video games than to go hear the gospel preach, then you're going you're to do what you find most meaningful. See, we know that we shouldn't talk junk about coworkers. We know we shouldn't overeat or overdrink or overexercise, not a problem for me, um, or overwork. But that's what we find beautiful in that moment. What is that thing for you? What is that fool's gold that my heart and your heart get latched onto? Like, this is the most beautiful and most meaningful thing today. See, gossip gives us an intoxicating power over other people, doesn't it? Because we love power. Overexercise, disordered eating gives us the illusion of control because we love to feel in control. Being in the in crowd, whether it's the five points crowd or at your kid's school or in your law firm or medical practice or just whatever you're doing, it gives us the illusion of acceptance and affirmation because we love to know that we are accepted. See, Jesus comes to us and asks, do you really want to be healed? Do you really know what you're asking? C.S. Lewis so brilliantly captures this this reality of the costliness of healing in the children's story, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I have the quote on the, on the front of your bulletin. Feel free to turn over and look at that for a moment. And the, the context of this, this is the story of Eustace. Eustace was, used to be a boy. But now he's a nasty dragon. And the idea that Lewis is trying to get at is that that sin is so distorting and perverting him that you, you can't even recognize him anymore. And that now he's standing before the lion Aslan, the Christ figure, 
and, um, and Eustace is, is trying to remove the scaly skin so that he might be restored to being a boy. And he can't. And then finally, the lion comes out with his claw and he starts digging. Here's the quote. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought he had done it myself. The other three times, only they hadn't hurt And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I'd been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. He threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out, dressed me in new clothes. Isn't that an amazing picture? See, maybe this morning there might be the time before God, and you're going to say, Okay, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop making New Year's resolutions every week and saying, I'm going to try harder for you. I'm going to be more disciplined. I'm going to get my marriage together. I'm going to get my family together. And you just stop and you let the claws of Jesus, the Christ figure here in this illustration, his love for you, peel back those layers of your life because he loves you, because he wants to restore you, because he wants to change you. We don't need new roommates, new parents, new friends, a new church, or a new boyfriend or girlfriend. We need Jesus to heal our hearts, to change our expectations, to pour His love into our hearts. Here's the most dangerous prayer that you can pray, and I know that I need to pray this, but it's a scary prayer. Every morning when we get up in the morning, say over and over again to your Heavenly Father, Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, Lord, have your way with me. Have your way with me. Remove anything and everything that is away from you. Peel away the selfishness. Peel away the entitlements and the demanding spirit. Peel away my critical heart. Peel away my insecurity and my defensiveness. It's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? Because like the hymn that we sing so often at Redeemer, I ask the Lord, when you pray that, He might actually, by His grace, show you the hidden evils of your heart because He loves you, because He wants to bring you to the end of yourself that you might believe that He loves and He cares for you. Do you see your need? Do you see the cost of healing? I want you lastly to see not only those two things, but thirdly, I want you to see the scope of healing. We get whiffs of this in Verses 1 through 18, where Jesus heals him bodily as well as spiritually, but we get an explicit definition and description in verses 28 through 29 of chapter 5. And Jesus is talking about when he returns in glory. He says this Do not marvel at this, 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is talking about His second coming when He returns in a very public, in a very clear way. See, God's vision for healing is too weighty to only be found in being able to walk again. And be able to have your sight restored. And being released from your anxiety attacks or your depression. Those are real issues. And Jesus cares about those things. I'm not minimizing that. I'm saying if that's why you're coming to Jesus, his vision for healing for you is much grander than giving you smooth circumstances. He wants to change us inside and out. Imagine a world with no depression, no abuse, no discrimination, no loneliness, no pollution, no rape, no war, no famine, no unemployment, no fear, no cancer, no divorce, no sorrow, no mourning. That day is coming and Jesus has begun that process of renewal in his first coming. When he returns in glory, he will finish that project. The curse will be gone. See, Jesus healing the lame man is simply a signpost that points forward to the day when Jesus returns in glory. That day when he makes all things new and every tear will be wiped from our eyes. No more death. No more sorrow. No more cancer. No more death. True, holistic healing, body and soul. But the only way for that healing to happen is if something is done about the curse that hangs over creation. See, creation is broken. There's a curse. Something must change. Friends, when you, when you realize that when Jesus died on that cross of Calvary, He was wearing a crown. But He wasn't wearing a crown of jewels, gold, and silver, which He was worthy to wear because He was the King of glory. No, the crown that He wore on Calvary was a crown composed of thorns. Thorns are a consequence and a reality of living in a world that is broken and cursed. What might you think it means that Jesus, when he died, was wearing the curse crown on his head? It means that he was removing the curse. He was taking on the curse himself. He was receiving all of the covenant curses on Him that we might receive the covenant blessings. See, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you might be frustrated by suffering in a world and wonder, why hasn't God done anything about this? Earthquakes and natural tragedies and war and famine, religious persecution in the Middle East. Why hasn't God done anything? He has. He has. He entered in. He took the curse on Himself. His healing grace is not yet fully manifested, but it will when He returns in glory. But even this morning, even like a small little mustard seed, His grace is changing people in this community. It is changing families in this community. It is changing institutions in this community. All by His grace. Do you have the eyes to see that? See, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, what is your definition of healing? 
Jesus went to one man in a sea of people. What might that look like for us this morning to go to one person in your workplace in a sea of people? What might that look like for you to go to one person who is desperate? That one person here at Redeemer who needs a friend. What would it look like for you to go to that one neighbor in your neighborhood who needs to know that you care? It's going to cost you something. The only way that you're going to do that The only way that I will ever do that is if you realize that he came to you. That we were that blind man, or excuse me, we were that paralyzed man that he came to and healed us. He came to reverse the curse, to heal us body and soul. How are you going to respond to this this morning? See, if this worldview begins to be what's on the forefront of our minds, it changes how you think about your work. You're like, oh man, this job isn't spiritual. God doesn't care about stocks and bonds. God doesn't care about selling furniture. God doesn't care about plumbing. Yes, he does. Because he is systematically putting this world back together again by his grace. We have a vision. We have a calling. He wants to use you. Have you adopted that vision? Or have you bought into platonic dualism that sees spiritual things like what Hal and Clay and I do is the only thing that matters and what you do, selling insurance and being a teacher, oh, that doesn't really matter. No. God has called you by his grace to use your callings, to use your gifts, to bring about his grace to this city and to the entire world. How are you going to respond? Let's pray.